Hey, y'all. Before we hop into the episode, first of all, thank you so much for returning to us here at The Great American Scream. Second thing, I have tragically lost Michael Segudo's beautiful re-recorded intro for us, so for the next three weeks, you'll be hearing me intro the podcast instead of him or whoever we get uh, to record something in this trying time. Without further ado, this podcast is about getting spooked for fun, and the hosts aren't associated with the attractions discussed in any way, except for all those skeletons in my closet. Some of the topics we discuss may go from ghoulish to ghastly, so viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to The Great American Scream. Hello and welcome back to The Great American Scream. My name is Devin Wright. Hi, my name is Adam O'Connell, and welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. It's been a while. Adam, how are you doing? I'm, you know, doing spooky, you know. You're doing, you're doing I'm spooky? Doing, I'm doing spooky 24-7, baby. That's great, great to hear. What are, uh, what are we going to talk about on, on this, our return from, from the deep, dark abyss? Yes. Yeah, so I sent um, I would like to present a brief pitch meeting about why I think uh, practical effects in horror movies are so much better than CGI. And uh, part of this came up because uh, within the past couple months, the film adaption of Scary Stories Tell in the Dark came out, uh-huh. which was incredibly exciting. Um, I myself was disappointed by the movie. Um, I thought it co- totally could have just been an anthology movie. Did you ever read the, those books as a kid? I somewhere in my vast uh, childhood book knowledge, there is some goosebumps and there is some scary stories to tell in the dark, but I don't know where those line up. They're all murky. Yeah, I mean, I scary stories was a lot less like camp than Goosebumps was, in my opinion. Mm. Um, I was but, all about the camp. I was a gay little boy. I mean, yeah, I'm all about I'm all about the camp now. But at the time, I was really like I was a little Wednesday Adams child and was really into like Courage the Cowardly Dog. That was my jam. Mm. But anyway, um, they could have done it like in an anthology film style where it was just a brief selection of some of the stories. But they decided to like make an underlying plot. And since the movie was PG-13, it couldn't be that scary or gory. But one thing that was expertly done, and we could have predicted this because Guillermo del Toro was involved, was the practical effects monster making in that movie was incredible. The full body suits and the prosthetics. And it was disappointing to see that some of it ended up getting CGI'd over just to add more effects. And I know that the technology is supposed to be a lot more advanced, but... Honestly, I, I've never seen a C, I don't think I've ever seen CGI in a horror movie that was like, oh, that wouldn't have looked better if it was a practical effect. Yeah, I, I think this is a it's a discussion that is getting even more nuanced as time goes on and tech gets even better. Because like for a lot of movies that are using predominantly practical effects, a little bit of CGI can go a long way and vice versa. So like if a horror movie is using mostly CG, but they sprinkle in a little bit of practical. It can make it look so, so, so real. But so many studios are like, oh, we'll just do it all in CG. Yeah. And it's a bummer. Yeah, it's a bummer but for sure. One of the you you assigned me homework. Yes, I, I was just about to bring that up. Yeah. So 
the two, Let's talk the, about the um the the watch mojo, the top scariest monsters and the top least scary monsters first. Yeah, I mean the when when you watch those videos it's pretty clear the delineation between one of those lists has a lot of practical monsters and one oh, of those yeah. lists has <laughs> And I don't want to like I don't want to like dunk on CGI either. Oh, for sure, but there definitely was I I think we can dunk on older CG. Like it was necessary, but we can say it looks yeah. pretty bad because what I want to talk about, Watch Mojo's great. I enjoyed those videos, but you know, I was just listening to the lovely people's voices and I kind of mm-hmm. I drifted off. But the two mummy videos that you sent me, and I've watched so one clip was from the original Mummy from yeah, 1932. The mummy Returns, 1932. And the other one was uh, Dwayne, the, Dwayne the Jock Ronson in The Mummy Returns in what was the year? 2001. 2001. And one of them was completely practical and the other one was uh, a head... Re- it, was, <laughs> it was a head replacement and then a big scorpion body. But also, he looks like the spider monkey from Spy Kids 2 Island of Dreams. This uh, Spy Kids has come up often, I feel like, in our discussions about horror. It's, and I don't yeah, know. I feel like on the evil side is uh, Russ McCamey and, <laughs> and the man in the fields. And on, and on our side is uh, Steve Buscemi. <laughs> Spy Kids. It's from Spy Kids and the, and the gorilla monkey. It looks so bad. There mm-hmm. is another video that I meant to send you uh, from somebody who does deep fakes who did mm. his the Dwayne the Rock Johnson's face much 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 better. Oh, um, with a so deep fake. Like, yeah. So yeah. like there are ways to make it better, but just the 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 thing that really gets you when we talk about practical effects and it's something that CG is getting better at, but it's that you feel like you can touch it feeling. Yeah. And in something like Avatar, feeling like you'd be able to touch it versus not, it's not that big of a difference in terms of immersion. Either way, you're like, oh my God, this is so beautiful. But for horror, if you don't feel like you could touch a thing, it's not going to be as scary. Yeah, I agree. And it's not just kind of like the the CGI is like the the breaking point of scary versus not scary because there's some very scary CGI based monsters and then there's some very non-frightening non-CGI monsters. One that comes to mind is the Leprechaun from the the Leprechaun movies. Not yes. to dunk on Warwick Davis because Warwick Davis is incredible, but yeah, the but Leprechaun, Leprechaun is not scary. His his beautiful little little Irish son yeah. is not scary. He's he's not scary. So um, I would like to talk a bit more about like what makes our favorite monster scary versus not scary. And a lot of that lies in the the, the, the creature design, which I think is sometimes overlooked um, in modern film as in like creature design has to be has to have deep storylines behind it. You can't make something scary just to oh, we're just going to make it look scary by adding blood or adding whatever. There has to be I think the deeper that the storyline that's carried through the creature design is the scarier that monster is. And that really comes to fruition in the 1932 mummy, just the way that he he looks and and the way that all of the things on him make so much sense the way that the the wrappings are and the way well, he kind of evolves back into a human uh throughout the course of the movie and then devolves back into a mummy so those different stages of decay and stuff um are really what 
I think, brings that monster into the real world. And that can be said for all of the Universal Classic monsters, too. They invented kind of what we know as modern horror. Yeah, and I think what you're getting at is the the way that the uh, so many monsters today have deep have just as deep of lore and mm-hmm. storytelling going on, but that line of storytelling doesn't go through the actual design, the visual design of the creature. Yeah, exactly. Like in something like The Mummy Returns in the 30s, you could tell that like the costume designer slash the, the monster designer, which is what mm-hmm. I hope to be credited as at some point <laughs> in my life, saw the way the story informs the creature design. Yeah, which is such a, a integral part, um, and it comes up whenever, like you and I in the theater world, it comes up whenever we are designing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it will be interesting as we as we go on through to yeah. see how the the stories the larger stories being told inform the design of the creature. Yeah, and it has to make sense. I don't know if you saw the uh, the Blumhouse Truth or Dare, that scary movie that came out a couple of years ago, but the big uh, shtick in that was that whenever these like people were asking Truth or Dare and were possessed by this Truth or Dare demon, they would get this big, wide CGI smile on their face. And like, objectively, I guess it was kind of a scary face, but in the context of the story, it wasn't scary because it yeah. made no sense why they looked like that. Like, there was no explanation. Right. And the scariest part of Truth or Dare is is finding out if you're going to have to tell uh, Jessica that you have a crush on her. Like, yeah, that's ex- what I'm scared of, is the social anxiety aspect. And the fact that that movie didn't dive into it and instead went for demons, yeah. I think was a it was a real misstep on Mr. Blumhouse's on, part. On Mr. What's his first name? Jason? Mr. Jason Blumhouse's part. I have, I have no idea. I think it's Jason, but I, I feel like a I bad horror fan Halloween. for not exactly. Um, he was Blum- born Halloween Blumhouse. Blumhouse man. Years ago. Um, Blumhouse is, uh, yes, Jason Blum. His name is not Blumhouse, Jason Blum. <laughs> it's not Blumhouse. <laughs> no, it's not Blumhouse. But anyway, um, so the Universal Classic Monsters, looking at them now, it's like, oh, that's not scary because effects have have evolved so much since then. But in 1931, when Frankenstein came out, people were terrified. There were news stories. There was this one 18-year-old girl who reported being too afraid to go into her attic for weeks because she thought Frankenstein was going to be in there. That's she was just trying to get out of the chores. Grandpa <laughs> the told chores? her to go get go get boxes out of the attic and she was like, "I can't, pap pap, I'm afraid Frankenstein's going to get me." That girl <laughs> threw us all for a loop. Um that's not a, that's not a good bit. <laughs> anyway, uh, but um, but yeah, uh, and, and they've evolved. So creature design has evolved so much since then. And monsters still make up a really big part of horror culture. Like a lot of it has shifted to kind of like ghosts or serial killers. But we've got Freddy Krueger. We've got Pennywise. And we've got that big monster in Cloverfield, the creatures in a uh, quiet place. Um, I actually don't you don't ever, ever see the monster in Cloverfield, right? That might be a bad example. Yeah, well, I think I think it's a I think it can still be a good example in that yeah. the the historical through line that we can draw is pretty it it's from something physical to something less and less physical mm-hmm. and while that makes the physical design of creatures a bit different or even non-existent in in a thing like the quiet Pla- a quiet place it's still like fascinating. Yeah. Like Pennywise is not like 
we're going to talk about Pennywise. Pennywise is not a clown. <laughs> like, right. He's, he's this eldritch god. But the way that we are scared by him, or at least the kids are scared by him, is by taking the physical form of, of Tim Curry, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is the most terrifying of all. Yeah. Uh, of all the clowns and and like you said i mean uh, monsters are still such a big part of of horror culture but i wonder how much of that has become i mean we've done it on the podcast of it's almost we're almost friends with our good our good monsters now yeah and that's what makes a good villain and a good monster is that they're scary but you also kind of feel for them like you you when you watch a horror movie like you kind of want leatherface to win like a little bit yeah, I I guess that's that might be where I can find some enjoyment in horror movies. As as we've talked about, I'm not a big fan of of horror movies. Mm-hmm. Uh but maybe my problem is I haven't been rooting for the killer enough. Yeah. This is how I change my I change I change everything. Used to take a walk on the wild side. But so I want to talk about Jack Pierce, who was the um, makeup designer who designed a lot of the Universal Classic monsters. So he okay, was. Um, can we give a, a a quick refresh of who the Universal Classic monsters are? Yes. When I say classic monsters, mummies. we're talking. Yeah, we're talking about the mummy. So Imhotep. We're talking about Dracula. We're talking about the Wolfman. Talking about Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. Creature from the Black Lagoon. And in most circles, the Phantom of the Opera or the Hunchback of Notre Dame. I like that. I like those a lot. Yeah, we'll talk on about. On one hand, you got crazy wolf man. You got immortal vampire who sucks your blood, and then you got guy who dropped a chandelier on some people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll talk about um, the Phantom and the Hunchback because part of the reason that they're included is because of their wonderful cre- uh, creature design and the the actor who played them. So uh, Jack Pierce was uh, born in Greece in 1889. And as a kid, he was always kind of predisposed to makeup and effects. He would uh, amuse his family by creating effects out of things he could just find. So he put goat horns on his head or he would cover himself in hair from like the sheep on his family's farm and stuff. I like that a lot. Yeah, that's good fun. Yeah. Um, But so he he started working as an actor from uh, around 1915 to 1925. He was very often cast as a villain um, because that was his like actor, like his type. But he was also really short, like... the, the research I got this from said he was really short, 5'5", five, five, which insulted which, me because I am 5'4". Five, five, five. Yeah. Um, hey, man, you can still you can still ride all the big roller coasters. So you're tall. Yes, I can. Um, he he would do scary makeup to make himself seem more threatening to compensate for how short he was. That is so powerful. Yeah, that I is, think I should do that on a daily basis. Yeah, you should basis. start doing that. You should. Um, uh, you maybe. So maybe for him, since he's cast as a villain, mm-hmm. like what would you what's what's your type, Adam? Paint, paint us an audio I mean, picture of what your type is. And then I'm going to come up with a way that you could enhance yourself using special effects. To, I mean, I do get, get I do get cast as villains a lot, usually like aristocratic villains. Like I'm Ooh. always a rich villain or the like a, a crazy old man or like a crazy queer character. Okay, that's so about I, the realm of what I play. I want to go with this aristocratic villain thing, which I like okay. a lot. I think which is what, what, I just did a show where I played an aristocratic villain and had makeup design for it. Yeah, I think what you should do is just wear too much, get surgically attached to like your fingers and your and your neck area, just the gaudiest uh, 
the gaudiest jewels <laughs> and, and necklaces and rings around so that you walk into the room and they go, that's... That's an aristocratic villain. That's a first estate villain right there. <laughs> that is that's a 1% somebody I would, villain. Yeah, that's somebody I would put under the guillotine. Let's cast I, him. <laughs> um, but so, uh, so Jack Pierce uh, was hired to work on Dracula in 1931, starting Bela Lugosi. Um, so Be- Bela Lugosi wanted to design his own look, which was a pretty common thing amongst big name studio actors because they didn't want to like they wanted audiences to still recognize them and they wanted to right. look good, you know. But so Jack Pierce told Bela Lugosi no and created yeah. this like narrow eyed blue gray Dracula with the widow's peak that we all recognize as Dracula now. So he took the vanity of an actor and shoved it in the toilet and said, Yes. This won't be a good... It's... Hey, this is one of... It's probably not the first, but one of many instances of somebody telling an actor, maybe the most important thing to this performance is not your pretty face mm-hmm. <laughs> being recognized. And I think that might... He, he did a service to all of us. By yeah, we need to keep that spirit up. But so he also worked on uh, Frankenstein in 1931, the same year. Um, so Frankenstein is green in most, like when you see Frankenstein or when you think of Frankenstein's monster, you picture him as green with the bolts on the neck and the big square yeah. head and stuff. It's because technically in this movie, he was green. He was not supposed to be red as green, but since the film was in black and white, they used this green grease paint because it looked right. this ghostly dead gray Gray. in the black and white film. So once like color photos and color restoration started to come out of this film, people were like, oh, he's green. So Frankenstein's monster is green. In the book, um, he's a yellow, like he's got like aging yellow skin that's stitched together and this long black hair. So he doesn't Mm. look anything like that in the Mary Shelley novel. Can we talk, um, do you ever hear a mandala effect of I always thought Frankenstein's bolts were in his forehead. I think that's, I I feel like I know that they were in his neck, but I feel like that's also something that you, like people probably put them in his forehead too. Okay. I was worried that I was from an alternate dimension for a second. No, I feel like that's valid. Um, They actually, they made his forehead prosthetic out of cotton and spirit gum, and then they would just glue it onto his head throughout the day. That man was finding pieces of cotton on his forehead until he died. Yeah. Um, so some of the makeup that was uh, later used on this actor, Boris Karloff, was found to be toxic. Probably the grease paint, which yeah. it happened a lot in old Hollywood. It happened to the actor who played the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz. That all I mean, of it that happened in our middle school. We all had to get the asbestos out. It happened. Oh. Yeah, I know. Some girl in my high school got sick because in Spirit Day, she painted her face yellow with acrylic paint. Oh, my God. It was very bad. But so um, uh, the that kind of grease paint isn't used anymore. So the whole process for Frankenstein took about six hours at first, and they got down to three, which is also common as makeup artists get better at putting yeah. on the stuff. It'll get a shorter time. They also used mortician's wax on Boris Karloff, which is a wax that is used by morticians and people who work in mortuary science and funeral homes to sculpt the features of dead bodies for funerals. That's what you should put on your face when you walk into auditions. Mortician's wax. A stronger brow. Yeah. Almost Frankenstein-like. Yeah, so much was put on Boris Karloff's eyes that he could barely see. 
which I imagine oh. may have informed his like hobble or the way that yeah, his character his, his moves. Shamble. That's <laughs> you know in the book actually he had a beautiful gait. He walked like a he walked like an aristocrat, but because uh, <laughs> because the see. actor couldn't see, he had to shamble around. Now this is uh, Mortician's Wax, which I got confused. This is not to be confused with adipocere or mortuary wax, which is an actual waxy substance that can form on dead bodies if they are buried in wet and uh, human environments that actually kind of transforms the fatty tissues of the body into soap. And there is a exhibit at the Mütter Museum in Pennsylvania of a woman whose almost her entire body um, was made into this adipocere soap, and she's called the Soap Lady. I like that. Soap Lady is now a part of our team. On our team, Um, it's Steve Buscemi (laughs) and the Soap Lady. Yeah, Soap Lady is uh, neutral good. Yeah, Steve Buscemi is chaotic good. Let's uh, going over to my genre of media in mm-hmm. Fight Club. I think they use they use mortuary wax because oh, yeah. when they kill the people to make the soap, mm-hmm. or they cut off the f- they what do they do for? Uh, I don't remember. They get uh, what's the thing you get when they suck the fat out of your body? Liposuction. Yeah, they get liposuction and then they make uh, soap out of it, like yeah, the soap that says Fight Club. That one. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen that homoerotic film. Oh, it's so homo. Not even homoerotic, just homo. Yeah. Chuck um, is so a gay man. <laughs> anyway. Going back to the mummy in 1932. So the way that they designed his look is the material that he was wrapped in was treated with flames and acid to kind of age it properly. Um, it was then dipped in collodion um, and stretched over Boris Karloff. Now, collodion is a syrupy solution of uh, nitrocellulose and a mixture of alcohol and ether used for coating things, Ooh. usually in uh, surgery or sometimes in old photos. But if that's alcohol and ether, Boris Karloff is probably high as a kite Contact for this whole drunk. film. Yeah, just for the whole thing. I um, we'll, we'll talk about this. We have an episode planned on kind of horror movie tropes, but the mm-hmm. whole idea... And we all, I'm sure we all know this, but the idea that a mummy is scary is so weird because I get it. It's like an undead person, but it's just, it's just a dude that, that like got wrapped up a while ago. It's not, I'm saying mummies ain't that scary. I feel like it's akin to a zombie though. Just yeah, with but a, a zombie like dies and then like rots and then comes back to life. A mummy was carefully and... <laughs> And, it's like and a, lovingly it's like an, an, preserved an aged by slaves, probably. A dry-aged like, like, steak. Like a dry-aged camembert, but a human. <laughs> um, but a so Cameron after, bear, if his name was Cameron. After all of this, uh, Collodion, then they also... Uh, they applied Fuller's Earth, which is a clay used to decolorize oil or other liquids without chemical yes. treatment to give this arid look as if he had been dried out. And this whole process yes. took eight hours. And Fuller's Earth is used in everything. Like uh, yeah. my time in costumes and prop work, that is like, that is, it's basically fake dirt. It's like, yeah. A so lot of this fun. stuff is not used anymore because it is so toxic. But then the other half of it is still used today. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's yeah. half deadly and half necessary to all productions forever yeah. today. Um, so Jack Pierce eventually became the head of Universal's makeup department. He was a really dedicated him. makeup artist. He would even go into morgues to practice on corpses, like That's legally. What we call on hand training. I like it. <laughs> I don't. 
legally or not i don't know but he would do that um he also invented igor for the film son of frankenstein in 1938 igor was is not in the book he created that character and then he el- created uh, elsa lancaster's look in bride of frankenstein as well That's so that iconic kind of stripe. beehive with the white stripe yeah that was all him and i have this great quote for him talking about um the relationship between the actor and the makeup artist and the character He says, the sole reason for any makeup and particularly a character makeup is not to proclaim the skill of the artist or the actor, but to help tell the story. Therefore, makeup must not be obviously makeup-y. This in turn demands that it be supervised by a qualified artist. For the actor, no matter how skilled he may be in the technical detail of applying his makeup, rarely has the right perspective to judge the makeup without bias. That is so good. I feel like it's a... It's the motif of this episode of Mm -hmm. it all goes to serve the story being told. Yeah. And we got to remember that the way the dang monster looks is part of that story. It's fascinating. Yeah, exactly. So I said we were talking about about, next. uh, We were going to talk about uh, the Phantom and the Hunchback, who were both portrayed by Lon Chaney. Now, if we're talking about actors not doing their own makeup, this is the opposite. Lon Chaney was known as the man of a thousand faces. He was expertly skilled in applying and designing makeup. He started doing films in the 1910s and again was most known for Phantom and Hunchback. Um, And in order to portray the Phantom of the Opera in 1925, uh, Cheney altered his cheeks with a a combination of cotton collodion um, and then which kind of gave it a scarred skin appearance. Yeah. Um, Then he also attached a strip of fish skin, which is a thin translucent material, not actual fish skin. Not made of fish skin. Okay. Not that I know of, but um, to his nose with spirit gum to create an upturned effect, which is basically the same as taking a piece of scotch tape and putting it on the tip of your nose and taping it to your forehead. Like like the the reverse of that really good vine where uh, the girl starts to push down her nose and then realizes she's squidward. That um, was the reverse of that was Lon Chaney in his dressing room with some scotch tape. And he'd be like, what if I <gasps> got really excited and he started taping up his nose? Um. So, and the upturned nose was further enhanced by a wire running from the tip of his Ugh. nose to under his bald cap, which often gave him nosebleeds, which I bet yeah. he just acted through. Like, he just used yeah, it. Yeah, I'm sure he did. That's every actor's dream. Yeah. Getting a spontaneous nosebleed that they get to act through. Yeah, it's like um, Leonardo they get DiCaprio to be one of those... shattering his hand or whatever during... I uh... was just about to talk about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, every method actor's dream. Yeah, but so... Hurting uh, themselves. <laughs> He did Hunchback in 1940, and he wore a 40-pound rubber hump on his back and a harness that contorted his body so he couldn't stand upright. Um, If you want to talk about method. Yeah, talk about method. Every single person who's ever played Richard III is quaking in their boots. Yeah. Like, that is, that's a lot. Um, We don't actually know a lot of his other techniques because he kept them a very closely guarded secret, including his, like, personal makeup kit. Um, He wouldn't even tell his son who is known Took for it to his grave yeah his son launching Chaney- buried in a tomb and he was he was wrapped up like a mummy and the only thing he kept with him was his makeup <laughs> box that he wrapped up with him <laughs> um so his he didn't even tell his son Lon Chaney jr who is known for uh playing the wolfman a couple wow. years on not to, like not to be confused with dick cheney no relation fortunately no <laughs> fortunately well there might be a rel- from it's spelled, Dick Cheney spelled with the, an E though, right? 
Yes, but the actor may not be related to Dick Cheney, but the monsters may be. Yeah, Hey-o. the Wolfman. Uh, but so we'll also talk about uh, going kind of a little more into the future because, you know, monster movies started to die out after the 50s, but then started to make a little bit of a comeback. And there are even some movies that are not explicitly like horror films horror, that right. are still like have this kind of intricate creature design, um, like John Chambers. He was the first person to ever win an Oscar for makeup for Planet of the Apes in 1968. It wasn't like an actual, like, winning one. It was an honorary Oscar right. because the uh, the Academy Award for Best Makeup wasn't established until 1981. But they were like, dang, these apes are good. How did you train them so well? Yeah. You get this honorary Oscar. Um, so he made individual molds for every single one of the actors that played an ape. And if you saw that movie, there's a lot of them, including all the extras. Oh, yeah. Um, they, they, he made these foam masks that were glued to their heads with spirit gum. And then he would add the wigs and fake teeth and all sorts of other latex. Now he said he deliberately altered the appearance of the apes to make them more attractive. Y'all. It was to get that Oscar. Cause he you was think like, the apes I know like, it'll get that. If they're a little sexy. I know it'll get the Academy. Yeah. I know it'll get the Academy all roused, riled up. If, these if, apes. I make, if I make them. If I make them, I'm going to bleep this. If I make them super f***, <laughs> then I'll get the Oscar. If they're a little sexy. Um, John Chambers was also known for creating Spock's pointed ears in the original Star Trek, which I guess well, they're also bal- a little sexy. Yeah, he bounced it out. Yeah, he bounced it out. He made a bad thing sexy so he could make a good thing sexy. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, we'll talk about Dick Smith, too, who was a makeup artist who invented the recipe for fake blood in the film Midnight Cowboy that is still in Ooh. use today. Um, so that fake blood recipe Thank you, includes uh, corn syrup, water, uh, Eller red and yellow food coloring, which is a special food coloring that doesn't dissolve in water. Um, methylparaben, which is a food preservative commonly used in other makeup to keep uh, bacteria and mold from growing. He also used Kodak okay. Photo Flow, which is like a wedding agent that you would like if you think of a dark room when you dip the uh, right. the photos in, which makes this fake blood poisonous. So do not eat this Gag. fake blood. Do not drink this blood. um, There is a ton of edible fake blood on the market, though. If you get any stage blood, um, most of it is edible and also often flavored. Like the Ben Nye one is uh, is tastes like peppermint. And uh, they say it does. But it tastes it tastes like if somebody took like, I don't know, what's like a like literally a flavorless syrup (laughs) ate a mint and then spit into it. <laughs> yeah. That's what it tastes like to me anyway. Um, well, the Meron one, which is what I used for my last Halloween costume, tastes like cake batter. Ooh, that's fun. Which I feel like is a Does complicated it specs in it? Like flavor. <laughs> it's a very complicated flavor for fake blood. Yeah. It seems like but, that's a lot of work. Not related yeah. to making it look like blood. Just Especially because sure if, if you're going to make it edible, you don't necessarily have to make it flavored. Right. That's but, true. That's very true. You know, I guess it's fun. It's a fun little treat. It's, it's a fun little treat. All right. Um, what so, else did this man uh, do? Yeah. Uh, so he also pioneered the technique for making masks by layering pieces over the actor's face instead of making the whole mask at once, which is like how everyone makes masks now. Um, and then he also worked, if we're talking going back into the realm of horror, he worked on The Exorcist in 1973, and he transformed, like, cute little Linda Blair with her little pigtails into an absolute demon. Yes, um, doing so, the Lord's work. 
he he tried six different looks. The first one he made was kind of like a witch look with like a hooked nose and like black lips. And uh, Dick Smith hated it, said it was terrible. And then they worked with one for a while while they were filming. And they decided that the dialogue of the scene, like her face wasn't horrible enough to match the dialogue of what mm. they were talking about. You're which is going back to the tying into. Yeah. Going back to talking about tying it into stories. Yeah. Um, so. They decided that her disfiguration should come from something she did to herself. Um, so the that infamous scene where she masturbates with the crucifix, they decided yes. that let's make these gashes and scars on her face. It looked like she used the crucifix to like hack at her face and scar herself, mm. even though we never see that happen in the film. And we might not even think of that in our brains, but right. just that that connection makes it look a lot like more realistic yeah the idea of we're gonna make this makeup effect and we're gonna inform it by another scene in the movie even if the audience doesn't make that connection consciously mm-hmm. they make it subconsciously and i do yeah. think with that last paragraph we earned ourselves the explicit e hey yes we did yay um but so uh he also created her like freaky tongue where she like sticks her tongue at her that long yes. gray tongue out at the priest and um the contact lenses which she wore several different pairs one that made her eyes all white one of the yellow ones um and he had to numb her eyes before she put them in because her oh. eyes would like freak out so much um for the scene where she vomits yes profusely um he created a special device with a tube and a nozzle um it would be like hidden behind her head and then there were parts attached to her face that looked like her skin and then uh the the not the a nozzle went into her mouth and it was attached to a pump uh, full of hot pea soup um hot pea soup there's a great great video online of them doing the effects and makeup tests for this where Linda Blair or her double is sitting in a bed in full makeup, full costume, vomiting profusely on this man who is in like a full black hazmat suit and is just sitting there and occasionally taking notes. It is yeah, so man. funny. It's when the flu hits your your high school <laughs> class, you still gotta take those notes. <laughs> Um, Nightmare on Elm Street in 1984 is also a great example of some cool makeup design. Um, the whole movie was super innovative in the way they do their practical effects. Like, um, when Nancy is running down the stairs and they're melting, that was done with a colored pancake mix. Um, the scene where Johnny Depp is eaten by his bed and then a volcano of blood spurts out. was My favorite scene in any movie. Yeah. Any movie where Johnny Depp gets any, any scene where Johnny Depp gets eaten up and is not in the movie anymore i love it (laughs) so the whole uh room the set of his bedroom rotated upside down so that way they weren't shooting blood up they were pouring it downwards down yeah um so freddy's look freddy krueger was uh created by david miller who also worked on the thriller music video all the zombies and that um he based all of the photographs on the burn victims from the ucla medical center because uh freddy's backstory is that the, the parents of the neighborhood set him on, like, incinerated right. him, basically. Yes. Um, it took about two and a half hours to apply. And then uh, Wes Craven, his original concept was for Freddy was that he had this, like, exposed skull and teeth on the side. And he had pus running out of sores. And then David Miller was like, it's 1984. We can't do that yeah, yet. Not yet. I think that actually that concept uh, informed the design of Two-Face in The Dark Knight. With the yeah. exposed teeth on the side. 
Oh yeah, um, yeah. And as the technology continued on, yeah. But right. David Miller was like, "Sorry, good. Uh, an example of good CG uh, horror effect." Oh yeah, Two Face and Dark Knight. Um, another really like primo example of good practical effects is uh, the thing John Carpenter nineteen eighty two. This is a horror movie I have seen. Oh yay! I'm so happy you've seen this one. Um, the it's the makeup so effects, the makeup and effects crew worked for like fourteen months around the clock for this film, which has incredibly impressive practical effects, every completely practical, all designed. Um, it was headed by uh, Rob uh, Botton, Botine. Um, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but he also did uh, Seven, Fight Club, Robocop, Total Recall, um, The Fog. So right. one of like, the most uh, iconic... Legendary 80s designer. Like Oh, yeah. Everything. Um, one of the most uh, iconic scenes from that movie that he designed was the defibrillator shock jump scare scene. So the way he did that was he made if you haven't seen the movie, um, somebody goes to uh, give a character a shock with a defibrillator and he's actually the thing. So his chest opens, opens up, up and then clamps down on the guy's arms. Yes. So he created a entire fiberglass dummy of the actor, which had the fake chest and that he even he mimicked exactly the actor's chest hair pattern. Um, and then installed a hydraulic rig while the actor laid underneath the fake chest so that he could still, like, emote and stuff. This and then the good. chest would clamp down on the other guy's arms. And for the next shot, where the arms are teared away, they used a stand-in that was a double amputee wearing a mask of the actor's fake uh, face and fake arms. Um, the That whole 30 seconds took about 10 hours to set up and shoot. Yeah, that is a- an example of practical effects taking way more time and way more effort oh, than way CG more time ever would but that it that sh- that scene is even even though today it you're like oh it's 1980s effects yeah. you can kind of tell but i it's think still that's so one that kind of still holds up yeah. yeah yeah it's it's still so a lot of this movie visceral um, and some of the materials that they used on set for this film included rubber foam latex fiberglass plastic gelatin creamed corn mayonnaise bubble gum and strawberry jam oh no sorry adam that's actually my grocery list i don't know how this ended up on here <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry about I'm so that sorry. let me take that away all right i'm i'm sick of these old people movies bring me into the okay. modern era um, so let's talk about uh, the the It remake. Yes, 2017 my good And this past year with It Part 2, um, which uh, I think is a great example of, because Bill Skarsgård did such an amazing job as Pennywise, it goes to show that no matter how good the design is or the makeup uh, artist is, that the actor has to wear the makeup and right. not vice versa. Um and although I can't imagine getting into amazing designs like that and not just completely going full spine into it. Right. When when we talk about actors uh, not wanting their faces to be covered up and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. often it, it comes from a place of, of a, a healthy amount of ego that an actor needs uh, to be successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of the time we're shooting ourselves in the foot because when an amazing makeup job is done on you when you put on an amazing costume it makes you a way better actor because you look in the mirror and you're like oh i'm pennywise like oh yeah yeah um so the the, his design started out taking about five hours to apply and then once i got good at it it took about two hours his whole like big bulbous head was one big prosthetic that was actually just bill skarsgård he brought that in (laughs) since his head looks like Um, the big uh, buck teeth and the fangs that he wore were 
would make him were yep. made to make him drool so that way like when he's like hungry for children children yeah he would drool um but that thing where his eyes look in two different directions that yes. is all him baby that's a there's a video of the director i think where he talks about the time bill told them that he i could thought do it was that. yeah bill hater i oh, think it was yeah. bill hater talking it about hater. it yeah uh also the thing in the first movie where he hides himself in the right. fridge and then like twists like a balloon animal out of it it was partially cgi and partially wires but he still had to get his like six four self into that little into fridge, fridge so he yeah. trained with a contortionist to right. stuff himself in there a perfect like confluence of practical effects practical training and cg and wires it is not yeah because there's some stuff be you thing. literally can't do with practical effects right like in that you see him come out and his chest twists all the way around like three times right which you right you can't do 90 percent of that without cg but then if you do the 10 percent practical it makes a cg look even more real um oh yeah and although it's three years only three years old it holds up incredibly well Oh, yeah. Um, let's also talk about a movie from the same year, The Shape of Water, which is not really not a, horror a monster movie. movie. Yeah. Right. But it is. Yeah. Um, it's another Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro movie. Um, and his design was based on uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon. Right. He's got that really deep connection to one of the Universal Classic monsters. But uh, del Toro thought that the creature from the Black Lagoon was too scary. And so he wanted him to be sympathetic and kind of handsome. Right. He got called up by the guy who did uh, Planet of the Apes. And the Planet of the Apes guy <laughs> by said, John Chambers. listen, you got to make him sexy. That's how you win the yeah. Oscar, baby. <laughs> and um, Guillermo was like, was all the, right. It was... It was also it was actually designed by uh, Shane uh, Mahan and Mike Hill, and uh, Del Toro wanted him to be quote the Clooney of Fishmen. Ooh, I c- <laughs> I like to c- consider myself the Clooney of Fishmen. Yeah, I'm gonna make that my Tinder bio. Yes, but yeah. um, so it, there were some very precise crafting to make him look like a fish, but also make him look enough like a person right. without going into like Uncanny Valley territory. Right. Um, so, uh, the studio legacy effects built a full body suit for the actor, Doug Jones, Doug Jones, who has played, no, not that Doug Jones. Um, Doug Jones has played a lot of movie monsters. Um, the Bye Bye Man, Abe Sapien in the Hellboy movies. He was the fawn and the pale man in Pan's Labyrinth. That's range. Yeah. And he was a Billy in Hocus Pocus. It's Ah. because he's. A very tall and gangly man and a very talented contortionist. Ah, my calling. I found I found my <laughs> idol. Um, Doug Jones, if you're listening, I love you. Come be on our podcast. Yes, and Senator Doug Jones, if you're listening, you're also welcome. Yeah. Um. So the uh, the suit that they made him was made out of foam and latex and had animatronic gills that were controlled from the outside, which has been another kind of uh, invention in more modern monsters is using animatronics. Yeah. Um, they were used a lot in the Child's Play movies for Chucky and stuff like that, because that can be a great aid for things that might be too dangerous for an actor to do or effects that because the, they're still practical, but they're more machines than they right. are. And there's also, makeup. I, I think, as two people who enjoy theme parks and Disney, mm-hmm. there is a, a certain amount of animatronic design that is super lifelike. But there's a point where you can get between lifelike and not lifelike that actually adds to the creepiness factor, like in Child's Absolutely. Play. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Doug Jones didn't have a lot of autonomy in the suit, and it was really 
difficult to be in because it was so skin tight. Yeah. Um, and he had to be in the water for a lot of it. And it was quite cold when he was wet. So yep. there were crew members that would cuddle him in between takes to keep him warm, which uh, I really yeah. like. Yeah. I mean, if you want to cut, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people on Twitter wish that they were those cast members or those crew members. Yeah. To, to cuddle Doug cuddle Jones in the, between takes. Yeah. Cuddle with the that. nice fish man. <laughs> um, so uh, there's and there's a lot of other uh, modern movies that are working with great practical effects and creature designs for their monsters. Um, the Descent, I think, is a great example of monsters that match their environment. If you haven't seen The Descent, it's about a group of women that go spelunking and come across these kind of cave monsters. It's an amazing movie. It's one of my favorites. But the way these monsters are designed, they have this very pale, almost iridescent skin. They were based off of vampire bats. Um, and they have these rather large, like bat-like ear holes, but they're blind. And the whole idea is that, oh, because they live underground in the dark, they rely using their sense of hearing. They've never been exposed to the sun. So they have this like iridescent skin. Cabin in the Woods is also an amazing example, which does use a bit of CGI just because of the amount of monsters that right. are in it. But um, they had about three months to create over 100 unique creatures for that scene towards the end where they're all let loose. Yeah. Um, the, the sugar plum fairy is a great example, which is, if you haven't seen it, is this little ballerina whose whole face is this gaping mouth yes. with teeth. Yes. Um, and my favorite monster from this movie, or perhaps monster ever, the merman. Okay. Um, who was almost entirely practical. If you haven't seen the movie, there's a gag where the people who, uh, spoilers for Cabin in the Woods, the people who the, who work in the office that are causing all of these monster movie things to happen are placing bets on which uh, monster these this group of cliche teens is going to activate first. Um, and one of them is really betting on the merman and gets mad when they don't end up activating the merman. And he ends up getting killed by the merman later when they let all the monsters loose. Right. So um, the merman was a totally practical suit um, for the oh. performer on set. It was apparently very painful makeup to be in. He was almost completely immobile because of how big and floppy the suit was. He was basically... Uh, like a fish for 12 hours and had to be carried around on a stretcher when they needed to move him. And then when he was laying on the floor in between takes, they would give him a little pillow and he would like curl up in a little fetal position and go to sleep. There's so uh, there's a bunch of cute pictures from the set of him napping and then the directors would wake him up and go, it's time to kill. <laughs> there's so many layers to that that are all... Yeah. Just so lovely. Yeah, and, and they they added this blowhole last minute where they were filming and deciding, they were like, hey, what if when he's eating this guy, a bunch of blood comes out of a blowhole? So they <laughs> created yeah. this practical blowhole effect that just, when they were filming it, spurted blood for like a minute and a half, even after they cut. Very good. And then a really fun fact um, is that the makeup and effects on this movie were worked on by Heather Langenkamp, who played Nancy, the main character, in the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Yes. We love to see career crossover. Yeah, I love that she's still working on horror and stuff. Yeah, yeah I absolutely think that the most integral part of creating monsters is tying them in closely with the story, deciding why they look the way they do, which is why a lot of creatures kind of like, I use the bye-bye man as an example. There's no yes. real reason the bye-bye man looks the way he did. They just made him to look scary. Right. Insta yeah. And I, I think that mm -hmm. the scariest part of many creatures is not only the way they look, but the entire story surrounding them. And mm -hmm. 
when the story surrounding them informs the way they look, the way they look is even scarier, which I think. Yeah, is, uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that does it for my notes about that does do it. Uh, making monsters. I'm trying to think of my favorite monster. Just like in any horror movie. Yeah, in a horror movie. And I think it's ba- I think it's I think it's capitalism. <laughs> I think that's my <laughs> scariest monster. <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I think I gotta give it to the merman from Cabin in the Woods. All right, so he's amazing. The two scariest that creatures. That actor it has wants been to be decided. on our podcast too. If, yes. if the merman actor wants to be on our podcast, merman, too, if come, you're out we'll there, you, you're welcome. And Doug Jones, capitalism, please. you're not welcome. No. Um, all right, thank you so much for listening. Yeah. To this our return. Thank you for to coming back on this journey. Yes. What What do we gotta What do we gotta pimp? Our website is uh, greatamericanscream.com. Uh, you can subscribe yep. to us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, iTunes is preferable. You can rate and review us there. That really, really, really helps out. Uh, you can tweet about us uh, with the hashtag TGAM. And what's our Twitter? Uh, our Twitter is at Great Scream Pod, P-O-D. And you can also check us out on Facebook at The Great American Scream. Um, we want to say thank you to Michael Zagudo, who did our intro bit. Yes, and we'd also like to say thank you. I got to find it. Uh, well, next episode is either, and these two will going to be coming out in the next, the next two, will, two. I'm just not sure right. of what order. Yes. Um, but we are going to be talking about uh, horror movie gimmicks in William Castle. And we're also going to be doing a uh, sequel to our original Ritual Games episode. I am terrified just thinking about it. Oh, uh, I'm so excited. Anyway, I have been Devin Wright. Yeah, and I have been Adam O'Connell. And, uh... <laughs> go get spooked is that what we say please go get spooked go get spooked, go get spooked safely all right <laughs>